0: Like a, well, not a movie, multiple movies. Like Mission Impossible, which for some reason my family always watched all the Mission Impossible movies. I don't know if that just tells you something about our personalities or something, but uh, we were always watching the Mission Impossible movies. And uh, reminds me of movies like that, or The Incredibles, right? You know the story of The Incredibles. Uh, I mentioned last night, and maybe this will strike you for the first time. What's the villain's name in Incredibles? Syndrome. Do you know why he's called Syndrome? Because he has a syndrome. He's crazy. Did you ever catch that? I saw that on a meme, so I can't take credit for that. You know those memes that say it took me 17 years and then I finally figured out? That was one of those things. But anyway, in all these hero movies, there's a lot that leads up to it. And in fact, there's people who are in trouble. There's a plot line that has to be laid out before you actually appreciate how amazing that hero really is. And that's the same way with God's Word. It's actually a big story. And our thing is, as New Testament Christians, it's easy for us to look at the end and look at the end of the story and only focus on what happened at at the climax, at the end. But for us to be mature and godly Christians, I think it's helpful for us to understand the whole story. It's like if we come into the end of a movie and we only watch what happens at the end and the hero saves the day, it's great and amazing, but we don't appreciate how amazing it is unless we understand the whole story. Which is why this Christmas, what we're going to do in True North, is we're going to study what the Old Testament promises about Christmas. Because most of us, when we look back to Christmas, obviously, we're looking back in time, so we're remembering what happened. There was a baby that was born. Jesus came. He's God who puts on flesh, and he lives and dies for us. And that's the climax of the story, right? And that's amazing. But if we don't appreciate what came beforehand... And all the promises and all the anticipation that the people of Israel had about it, I think we're missing the real impact of this story. And I know it's not just a story, it's the truth. But I think we really get a better appreciation for the truth as we understand the Old Testament. So, if you've got a Bible, please turn to the left side of your Bible, to the book of Isaiah. We are usually spending most of our time here in Ephesians on the right side of your Bible, but please open up to the book of Isaiah, and you can start in chapter 8, verse 22. That's where I want you to get to. But as you turn there, I want to explain a little bit of the background of, of this passage. So Isaiah was written while there's both the northern tribes and the southern tribes in Israel. There's two kingdoms, Judah and Israel. Isaiah is a guy who lives in Jerusalem, and he actually interacts with a lot of the royals, and he talks to one of the evil kings that was ruling in Judah. King Ahaz. And Ahaz had a political problem on his hand. Here's the problem. He had two enemies that were to the north of him that both wanted to team up on him and fight against his kingdom. That's a political problem. So he finds a political solution, which is to go to a kingdom that's even farther north, the Assyrians, and pay them off to say, please, please, please come save us. So He decided, this king, Ahaz, decided to take the money, and where did he get the money? Was it his money? Was it, did he steal the money? Well, here's where he got the money. He took the money from God's treasury. He took God's money and spent it on buying out this foreign king to try to deal with his political problem. Now, as you could imagine, God's not happy with that. And really what this reveals in a guy like Ahaz is he's trying to find these political solutions. He's trying to be really smart and try to be really creative to find solutions to his problems instead of turning to God first. Because if he turned to God first, those two kingdoms that he was really scared of would be gone. And what happens is God actually comes through Isaiah and says to this king, hey, ask me of a miracle and I'll do a miracle for you just to prove that I can take care of these these foreign kingdoms. And Ahaz, because he already made up his mind to steal God's money and to pay off the king, he says, oh, I don't want to see a miracle. I don't want to ask God for a miracle. And God says, I know why you don't want to ask God for a miracle. It's not because you're being righteous and holy. It's because you already made up your mind to sin because you don't want to deal with with me. So God says, I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to show a miracle to you. And here's the miracle that he promises in Isaiah 7, that I will give you a sign of a child. It says, the virgin shall conceive and bear a child, and his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. So God decided that's the sign. And there's a little short-term fulfillment of that. What he says later on, God expressly tells Ahaz, the two kingdoms that you're afraid of, Israel and Aram, which was the kingdom called Syria, up in the north. You're scared of them. By the time this baby grows up, and he can know his right hand from his left and he can talk and he can walk and he can go to elementary school and all that stuff. By the time he gets to that age, those two kingdoms are going to be wiped out. And that's exactly what happened in chapter 8. But the problem is, I turned you to the end of Isaiah 8, 22. That's where we're going to look in a second. The problem is, uh, the big problem for Israel really didn't get fixed yet. In fact, God took care of that small, short-term problem. But the people of Judah and Israel are still in a big problem because they're not right with God. That's ultimately what goes on here. And he describes that with this word that we sometimes use in our culture, and it's a helpful word to think about, separation from God. It's the word darkness. He says the people are in deep, deep darkness because their real problem, although their short-term problem got solved, the the big problem that they have hasn't been solved. The big problem for these people was our big problem, uh, that we get sick and that we die and that we have to face God in judgment and we've sinned. That problem hadn't been dealt with. So, check it out. That's a lot of background, but Isaiah chapter eight, verse 22, look what it says. It says, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness and the gloom of anguish. It's that picture of like when you're really sad and you feel like you're in a cloud. He says, that's what all these people are like in this situation. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. But verse one of the next chapter, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. So promising something about the future. God says, the people who are in a lot of trouble right now, who are feeling the gloom of anguish, they're not gonna be that way anymore in the future. It says, in the former time, so looking back, he, that's God, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, right? And for us, we're thinking, okay, I need to see a map to understand where that is. Well, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, those are the two northernmost tribes that we got in Israel, and what happened for them is, remember how I said all their enemies were to the north of them? Well, they were like the border towns. Imagine you've got all these enemies up to the north, and that, that first level of defense is Zebulun and Naphtali. It says that's the land of deep darkness, because what would happen is these kingdoms, all the bad ones, would come in, they would raid their cities, they would kill the men, they would enslave the women and children, sometimes they would rape, sometimes they would pillage and steal, and they did all these things, and where did it happen? It didn't happen down south in Jerusalem. They were pretty safe. Where did it happen in these Two areas, Zebulun and Naphtali. Obviously, these people are in horrible, horrible darkness, horrible wartime, like something that you and I have never lived through. And he says they're in a land of deep darkness. Look what he says next. He says, but in a latter time, in the future, he, that's God, has made glorious the way of the sea. That's a, a it was a road that would go down, and the, the people from the north would take this road. It's called the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So what God is promising here is one day in the very area where Israel is being attacked and raided and people are getting destroyed in this city, something's going to happen in that spot. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shown. So what he's promising is the solution to your biggest problems. Do you know where you're first going to see it? Where are you going to see it? Well, you're going to see it in Zebulun, Naphtali, that region of Galilee. There's going to be a light that shines out of that region that nobody really cared about. It was poor. It was not well taken care of. And it was really the, 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 the battering ram. Everyone was always battering against Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee. But something's going to happen there. He's promising something in the future. Obviously, as you read that, you might even know verse 2. It's a famous verse. I think you understand something of what Jesus did to fulfill this. This is all the background. This is the lead up to what Jesus did, but you know that Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, where did he interact? Where, Where did he go and talk to people? Where did he do his preaching? Where did he do his healing? Well, Matthew 4 makes it very explicit. He did it in Galilee, And in Matthew 4, Matthew quotes this passage. It says, to fulfill what the prophet said, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. So here in Matthew 4, it's described the same way here, that some light has shown there, and that's Jesus. Verse 3, he talks about how amazing it's going to be for these people. He says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So it's imagining this land that was in in darkness and and all this terrible stuff, they're gonna rejoice one day like they just got the crops, like the corn came in and like the the wheat came in and they're gonna get all excited and they're gonna sing the corn song because they're so excited about having their harvest. They're all excited, right? Um, Maybe not the corn song, but you understand what I'm saying. right? They're gonna have a good time at some point. Verse number four, he reminds them of something. He says, the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. What that's describing is, imagine um, a person walking around. It's not hard for you to imagine. A person walking around, and uh, someone's walking behind them, and uh, behind them, they've got this big, I don't know, PVC pipe that's on their shoulder. If you, just imagine you and your friend were walking around, you had a big PVC pipe, and you're walking around, let's say it's a six-foot pipe, and it's on the back of your friend's shoulder. Uh, What do you do? if you're holding that uh, down on your friend's shoulder, uh, you're gonna be tempted to go smack, 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 right? Um, what it's describing is it's a figurative picture for two nations uh, against each other, but one nation overpowering another. It's like there's a big rod, there's a big staff, there's a big you know, stick or PVC pipe that's laid on their back and they're constantly be driven down. He says there's a rod like that, but what's gonna happen? God is gonna come and break that. So these people, again, Who are in darkness, who have all these terrible things going on to them, one day God promises, I'm gonna take that rod of oppression and I'm gonna break it and they're never gonna mess with you again. This is a hero story in the making. It says, As on the day of Midian. If you know your Bibles, you remember that word Midian was important in the book of Judges, Judges 7 and 8. Uh, There's a guy named Gideon who's not from Midian, it's kind of confusing, but Gideon fights against the Midianites, and what happened was he didn't fight and say, okay guys, we're going to gather as many people as we can, we're going to be super strategic, and we're going to attack them. That's not what God had him do. What God had Gideon do was take all of his army and make it smaller and smaller and smaller, and then he got them to get a bunch of pots and pans and musical instruments, and uh, at the sound of Gideon's trumpet, what they do is, all break their pots together, and they would smash their kitchenware together, and they would make these loud sounds, and the Midianites all killed each other, thinking the enemy came in the camp. So what he's trying to describe here is, that was a day where Israel did not save themselves. They didn't. God supernaturally worked to save them. It was not their salvation that they brought for themselves. It was God coming in, supernaturally taking care of the problem. What this says is, one day, that rod of oppression is going to be broken just like God did with the Midianites. That's all God. That's none of the Israelites. It's all God. Verse number five describes this war. You can probably picture a war when you see these things. Look at verse five. It says, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled with blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. That's a picture of everything that was used for war all the tactical vests, all the guns, all the tanks, all the armor, all the material, all of it kind of being rolled up into one big ball and then being lit on fire, right? You don't do that unless you're crazy in our world today because you need those things because um, you know there's plenty of threats of war out there. But why do they do it here? Well, because there's no more war anymore. There's no more fighting. You don't need those things anymore. They're done. Do you see how what Isaiah is doing and God is doing is he's looking beyond their temporal circumstance and he's looking to something bigger and better in the future. That all leads to this verse six, the verse we're going to study this morning. It says, for us, for to us, a child is born to us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder. So now the government's on his shoulder. The rod of oppression is not on your shoulder anymore, but the government's on his shoulder. So I want you to see this. This all leads up to, you can imagine the next verse, verse six saying something like, and then God is gonna come down with fire and he's gonna take care of all the enemies. Uh, But it's not what it says. It says the solution to their biggest problem and your biggest problem and my biggest problem of sin and death and the wrath of God, it all gets dealt with with a baby. That's the climax. And that's what would surprise them. We look back and it doesn't surprise us. We celebrate Christmas every year. and We think, yeah, that's when Jesus was born. But that would have shocked them. That the solution to all this was just a baby being born? This baby is no ordinary baby. It's not just an ordinary kid. Some people read this and try to say, oh, this must be Hezekiah or, oh, this must be some other uh, Judean king. It's not because look what his name is called, right? And the names in the Bible are very important. Look what this this baby is going to be called. First of all, wonderful counselor. That's a phrase used about God in Isaiah 28. Wonderful counselor, okay, so maybe it's just this person and God have something in common. Well, next one doesn't really um, work with that. Because the next thing this, this little baby is called, look what it says. Mighty God. This baby is called Mighty God. Not this baby will worship God, or this baby is formed by God, or for God's glory, like all the other names that we see in the Old Testament. No, no, no. This baby is God. Wow. Well, are we sure that's what it means? Look at the next one. He's also called everlasting father everlasting means eternal or always existing father is a word used to describe the source of something so it's basically saying this baby has always existed and he is the source of our life and he'll always exist in the future um That's not an ordinary baby. Obviously, he's not an ordinary baby if he's called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. But Everlasting Father just proves the point even further. And you might say, well, what is this person going to do? Look at the fourth name used for this king, this baby, Jesus Christ. Look what's used. Prince of Peace. That's the last name that's used for him. And that goes into verse seven, which we'll talk about that next time. But I wanna focus in on these names of Jesus and I wanna focus in on the big thing that God did to solve our problem. And I want us to appreciate that because we can look back and we can say, yeah, Jesus came for us and he was born. But I fear that we don't appreciate that as much as they would have in the Old Testament. I want us to get a big picture of that and I want you to walk away from this morning thinking, wow, that's a bigger deal than I thought. Wow, that's more surprising than I would have thought. I want you to walk away that way and I want you to think, this is the only one that we can put our trust in, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, because ultimately their problem was not just Assyria, it wasn't the Arameans, it wasn't the Israelites, it wasn't the northern tribes, that was not their real problem, their real problem was the same thing as your real problem, and it's sin, it's death, it's the fact that all of us know we're guilty before God, and if we're all honest, we know we've done wrong, And if we stood before God and he were to evaluate us based on his law, we all fall short. That's our problem. That's their problem. But do you understand that the Bible is very clear? That in the birth of a baby boy, our problems were dealt with. They were solved. That should blow our minds. This baby boy, obviously, is not just a normal baby boy. I had a baby boy that was born recently. Um, Not that important uh, in the grand scheme of things, right? Um, No offense, Jordan. But... uh, This baby, this Jesus, this person who's born, would change the world because he's God in the flesh. Um, The first thing I want you to see, I'd love for you to write it down for point number one. I want you to appreciate God's specific promises about our Savior. I want you to appreciate that. Uh, That's kind of the point of this morning. I I think we we celebrate Christmas and we think about it and we can be festive and think it's great, but I want us to really get a good picture of what the Old Testament says. God's promises... Are not super like generic and vague and um, things like that. It, and it reminds me at Christmas time we always talk about what people want for Christmas. And I'll just tell you something about myself. Uh, there's a difference between my wife Alexandra and me, and one of them is this: that uh, she likes surprises. She likes it when I uh, say, "Hey, you know, let's let's go to dinner at this place we've never been before," and she thinks like you know, who kidnapped my husband? And, you know, like, who are you? uh, Because she gets all excited about surprises and things like that. Um, I, on the other hand, have I told you this? I don't like surprises. I'm not a huge surprise guy. Um, Some of us are, some of us aren't. Um, Yeah, I'm not a big, like, adventurous food person, so I don't like someone to say, we're going to go to dinner and, uh, I'm not going to tell you where, but I'll take you somewhere. You know, I'm looking at, I'm looking at the, the trans. Uh, you know, Jeremy, Nicole, where are you right now? I see Nicole right there. I see Jeremy right there. You guys. Um, <laughs> you want to hear a story? I'll tell it to you. Uh, their uh, wedding, rece- not reception, rehearsal, dinner, they took me to a very Chinese restaurant and uh by very Chinese, I just mean it was very chinese right there was Pan Express on one end of the spectrum, and then there was this place on the other end, right and it was uh was it not no okay, well <laughs> it was as far on the spectrum as I had ever gone let 's just put it like that, and uh octopus and. Things like jellyfish, right? They made me eat the jellyfish, and it was, it tasted, it didn't taste like anything, but it it felt like what you would assume jellyfish feels like. Um, So my point is, I'm not a big surprise guy. I don't really like, I love them, but I I did, you know, was the food the greatest ever? Like, did we drive through afterwards? Maybe, but like, whatever. It's okay. It's okay. Um, I tried. I had a lot of rice that night. It was great. Um, I was the only white guy there. It was, it was good. Um. Huh. What was I saying? Oh, I'm not very adventurous. I'm getting back to that. Sorry. Yeah, not very adventurous. I, I, I like the list, you know. I like people that, if they want to buy something from me, it's like buy it off the wish list. My family's big into wish lists. We all have to send each other our Amazon wish lists, and my mom gets on us and says, have you updated your wish list? Uh, and I'm like, oh, sorry, I'll update it. I'm, I'm big into that, right? Uh, my point here is Sometimes we think, well, God might have made promises, but they're vague, they're general, they couldn't have been that specific. Well, I want to tell you the promises that God makes are specific. And if you look at God's Old Testament and you start adding up what He says, they start to really narrow down what this baby boy is going to be like. They start to really tell you what our Savior is going to be like. Obviously, God didn't give every last detail about how Jesus is going to be, but He gave us so much, an overwhelming amount of evidence in the Old Testament that points straight to Jesus, that His list is very specific. I want to give you some passages. We're not going to turn to many of these. We're only going to turn to one, but I want you to write these down. These are God's specific promises about his son, Jesus. Here, here's a big list of passages that I'd love for you to look up at some point. These are very important. First one, the first time a Savior is ever promised is right at the beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is literally... Ten verses after sin enters the world, God says, I'm going to fix the problem. What he says in Genesis 3.15 is the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. So that means there's going to be someone that comes from Eve in the line of Adam and Eve who's going to come and deal with the serpent. That promise is heard so much so that in the next chapter, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but in Genesis 4 when they have the first baby, cain eve rejoices and says i have a man by the help of the lord look I, I i had a kid and it was obviously that would have been weird first time a kid was ever born so she's really happy like wow this and maybe she thought he would solve the problem but obviously he wasn't the savior that's promises in genesis three fifteen. later in the book genesis forty nine ten, god makes a promise that the ruler will come from one particular tribe of israel First in the book of Genesis, you got Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, then Jacob has 12 sons, and one of his sons is named Judah. And Judah is going to be the tribe, the people group, that this Savior comes from. Genesis 49.10 says, the scepter will never depart from Judah. The scepter was the ruling staff. It's like, Judah's going to be in control. They're going to be the ruler, and, and it'll never get taken away from their hand. That's interesting. Um, so we go on and we say, okay, what does the rest of the Old Testament say about where this baby's going to be from? Well, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, God speaks to David directly, and he says, your family is going to be the one. Someone from your family is going to rule forever. He says, I'll establish your house, which house is a, another word for family. He says, I'm going to establish your house forever, and the kings will come from your line. And it, they'll always, always reign. Um, so if you look back on history, that did not take place. There came a point in time where David's descendants no longer were in charge. But what he goes beyond is to say, hey, this person is going to be from the house of David. That's why in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 11, you see that this person who's going to solve the problem is said to be from the stump of Jesse. So that means from the house of David. The Bible's very clear. It's going to be from David. Isaiah 7, we already talked about this, but Isaiah 7, 14 says that the virgin will conceive and bear a son. I hate to break it to you, but none, none of us qualify for that, right? Um, we all were conceived naturally, in one way or another. Um, you can't be conceived like this, except Jesus was. It's kind of a weird idea, but Jesus, half of his DNA came from Mary, right? Where'd the other half come from, right? Not from Joseph. That's kind of an odd thought. How did God do that? Well, God God had a miraculous, he made DNA right there, boom. And that's, you know, did Jesus have eyes that look like Mary? Probably. Did he look like Joseph? Probably not, right? Because um, God didn't use Joseph to make Jesus, right? He's just special creation um, and his body was specially made. It's super unique, only can apply to him. Isaiah 53 is probably the most clear passage in all the Bible to talk about Jesus. It describes how Jesus will be rejected by people, that they will not esteem him as the person he really is. They look down on Jesus. When they should look up to him, they look down on him. And it says that he'll suffer. He'll be pierced for our transgressions. He'll be crushed for our iniquities. Upon him is the chastisement, the the discipline that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. At the end of the chapter, it says, on account of this person, many will be made righteous. What that means is that there's gonna be a bunch of people that because of what this one person did, a bunch of people are gonna be looked at by God as righteous, as holy. And that's what happens to us Christians. We're accounted righteous because of what God did through Jesus. The last one, I'd love for you to turn to. Turn to the right in your Bibles a couple books to Micah chapter five. I want you to see this, Micah five. This is one of the more clear ones that just keeps narrowing down this person, this Savior that's going to come. I want you to appreciate this and step back and say, wow, I can't believe how specific God was. Micah chapter 5. Micah was written around the same time as Isaiah. He lived at the same time. Um, Micah is actually sometimes quoted in the book of Isaiah. Like he's, he's around Micah of Morsheth. Um, they know each other. Micah writes. This is obviously from the Lord himself. This is not Micah just making things up. Micah 5 verse 2 says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. So this town called Bethlehem, it's one of those flyover towns where if you're mentioning an area and a region, like what are the things that you mention? Well, you mention places like Jerusalem. You mention other cities around, but you don't really mention Bethlehem because it's really small. He says, out of that small little town, that's too little to be named among the clans of Judah. Look what it says. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Okay, So from this place of Bethlehem, there's going to be someone that's born who's going to be the ruler over Israel. Look what it says next about him. Who, who's coming forth, is from of old. So instead of like our birth, when it just takes place where, you know, it just happens and boom, there it is, you know, you're conceived and we, you know, are brought together, your parents get married, whatever, they have you, whatever. Um, there's not some like big long chain where your birth was promised from of old. In fact, you didn't exist before you were conceived, right? You you just didn't exist back then, right? You started to exist when you were conceived. Uh, this person existed before he was conceived his coming forth is from ancient a days therefore verse 3 check it out it says he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of israel and he shall stand and shepherd his flock so it's describing this ruler what does this ruler do well he's like a shepherd who who takes care of the flock of his people in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. You know, one of the most important things that Jesus calls himself in John chapter 10 is the good shepherd. Israel had a lot of bad shepherds. But Jesus says about himself, I'm the good shepherd. He's, again, fulfilling what Micah says about him. What does a shepherd do? Well, a shepherd protects. A shepherd guides. A shepherd feeds. A shepherd tries to care for the good of the flock. The shepherd will leave the flock to go help one to bring them back to the rest. That's what these shepherds do. And Jesus says, I'm the shepherd of my people. And they shall dwell secure. For now, you shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. Not just saying he'll establish peace, that's one thing, but he is their peace. You might be thinking, okay, a lot of Old Testament passages, and I just quoted a bunch, what does that have to do with Jesus? Well, all those things are wrapped up and culminated in what Jesus did, and you can read those and see that they're not just talking about a generic person in the future, they're talking about the specific person of Jesus, and for us, we need to look at that and say, that is our promised savior too. That's my promised Savior too, not just the people in Israel. And I want you to notice there's all this talk about the people dwelling secure and being safe. And you might look at this and say, well, see, that's why I don't believe this is really about Jesus. You've been talking about it about Jesus, but I don't really think it is because all of God's people seem to still be in a lot of trouble. It's not like we're all dwelling secure. It's not like we took all the instruments of war and they're all burned up and there's never war again. There's wars going on right now in our world. You might say, I don't believe this is him. Well, the problem is Jesus does all this in two different phases. His first phase was to come and establish the peace that was most important, the peace between you and God. And that's what he came to do on the cross. But the next time he comes, he will come to establish world peace. And I mean, he'll do that, obviously, through taking over his enemies. But that's who he is. Appreciate all these specific promises. They're fulfilled in Jesus. John says this, John 1, 1, in the beginning. Was the Word. Jesus existed in the beginning. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Clearly saying Jesus is God himself. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So anything that exists right now, it's because of Jesus. It's made through him. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Calling back to what Isaiah 9 2 said. People walk in darkness, just like you and I walk in darkness. We feel the sting of death. We have loved ones who die. We have people who get sick in our families, and we don't know what to do. And ultimately, we all understand our sin problem, and then we don't really know what to do. And we're stuck. There's nothing we can do about it. But there's one who can. And that's the the Savior that's promised for us. That's what Jesus came to do. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen His glory. Glory is the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth the reason I want to stress to you so firmly this morning that Jesus is this person, and that this person is God, is because there's a lot of people in our world who will tell you that Jesus is a good teacher, that Jesus is very wise, that Jesus, yeah, I mean, he had some good things to say, but he's not God, because you know what, if he's God, then he has to tell me what to do, and he gets to tell me what to do, because he's God, and he made me. Most people in our world reject that, even if they will ascribe some kind of like loyalty to Jesus by saying, yeah, I'm sure he was a good teacher, things like that. I was recently listening to um, this person who was talking and he was on I think, a podcast and he was saying some interesting things and I thought, man, this person's pretty good. And I was liking what they were saying and, and my wife and I were listening to him in the car and um, all of a sudden he, he blurts out something really weird. He said, yeah, you know, it's just like you know, people are really gullible. It's just like all these people think that uh, Jesus is God. Like, why would they think Jesus is God? The scripture doesn't say Jesus is God. That's just something that your Sunday school teacher told you. He never says that. He never says that in the Bible. No one ever thought that. It's a total made-up thing. And it's like, whoa. (laughs) Like, you went from like, oh, man, you're kind of interesting to listen to, to you're a heretic, right? You are in the category of you cannot be saved if you don't think Jesus is God. That's a disqualifying thing. You don't even fall in the realm of Christianity anymore. You're outside. You're what what we call, there's a word for this. It gets used in a lot of different ways today. Um, You're in a cult. A cult is a separation, something that's um, removed from Orthodox Christianity, biblical Christianity. You create a group that you separate yourself from biblical Christianity. That's called the cult. So clearly this guy was a part of a cult. Wow, Um, that's interesting. I want you to know that If you were talking to a person like that, I want you to be brave enough and I want you to be knowledge enough to know how to respond to that, okay? This morning, if we're talking about the deity of Christ, which is the technical term for the fact that Jesus is God, I want you to be knowledgeable enough to have a conversation with someone who says that to you because it's gonna happen. I promise you, if you speak up for Jesus, at some point in your life, you're gonna talk to someone who who thinks Jesus is a good teacher, but just not God. Um, How do we know? Well, all those promises in the Old Testament Specifically, the one here that he's called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is about Jesus. Jesus claims to be God. John 8 58, when these people came up to Jesus and they're saying, Oh man, you're not even 50 years old. And you're talking about how you know more than Abraham. And Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am, quoting God's name, Yahweh. And it says, They picked up stones to stone him because they knew exactly what he was saying. Nobody in Jesus' time missed that whole thing about how he claimed to be God. John chapter 10, after he called himself the Good Shepherd, he says, I give eternal life to whoever, and no one will snatch me out of the Father. No one will snatch um, anyone out of my hand. And then he says, No one will snatch them out of the Father's hands. Like you got two hands grasping us as God's children. And then he says, I and the Father are one. And you know what happened? And they picked up stones to kill him because they understood exactly what he was saying. Saying, I'm God. I'm the one promised in the Old Testament. I'm the son of man promised in Daniel chapter seven. I'm the the child that's gonna be born in Isaiah chapter nine. That's exactly what he said. In John chapter 20, verse 28, after all of these things, and Thomas sees Jesus resurrected. Do you know what Thomas does? He falls down on his knees and says to Jesus, my Lord, which means boss or king, and my God. And if you're a, a good person, you should say, I'm not God. No, but he, he welcomes that. He says, yes, that's totally right. He's worshiped as God. He's called God. He uses the titles of God, the Alpha and the Omega in the book of Revelation. Those are God's titles in the book of Isaiah. Wonderful Counselor is used of God. Mighty God, also used of God in Deuteronomy 10, 17. It's also used in the book of Isaiah, chapter 10, verse 21. These, these titles are God's titles, and he uses them about himself because he's telling the truth. That's who he is. It's not something that we made up If this is the first church you've ever gone to, this is not something that our church made up. Um, This is not something that people made up in our generation. Let me just quote to you what Christians were saying um, centuries and centuries ago. Can can I read this for you? Uh, This came from the year 325 A.D., okay? So you don't know anybody alive in 325 A.D., do you? That was, you don't know any grandparents. You can't trace your lineage. Ancestry.com doesn't help you that far back, right? I mean, this is a long time ago, okay? This is what the Council of Nicaea said. We believe... In one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten of his Father, of the same substance of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten and not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, both which are in heaven and on earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate and made man. That's what Christians were saying in 325 A.D. Let me read what Christians were saying in 451 A.D. The Council of Chalcedon says this. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all all with one consent, teach men. So this is what they were telling people. This is is who Jesus is. We teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. The same, perfect in Godhead, and also perfect in manhood. What What are they trying to say? That he's fully God and he's fully man at the same time. Then he says, truly God and truly man of a reasonable soul and body, right? So he didn't have like three things going on. It wasn't like he was a soul and then he got this other soul and then he's got a body. No, he is a soul and body like us. It uh, goes on, consubstantial with us to manhood, meaning, meaning he was like a human being. He was a human being uh, in all things like to us without sin, right? So Jesus is truly a human being. That was a big problem they had in the early church. They said, yeah, Jesus might have been you know, God, but he wasn't really human. We got to hold those two things together because that's what the Bible does. That's what Christians throughout the ages have done. He was like in all things like us, except without sin, begotten before all the ages of the Father according to the Godhead in these latter days and for us and for our salvation. Here's the point. Um, the Old Testament promises it. Jesus affirms it in the New Testament. The authors of the New Testament go to great lengths to say that Jesus is God. The church history confirms it, uh, and we need to believe it, period. Jesus is God. That might have been more than you thought you needed about Jesus as God, but I hope all of that leads you to point number two, which says uh, put all your hope in Jesus, our promised Savior. He is a trustworthy person. He's one that we can trust in life and in death. He promises that he is the resurrection and the life That everyone who trusts in him will never perish. They might die, their bodies might die here and now, but they will never die. They'll never be separated from God if they trust in him. Four things, these four uh, titles tell us something about Jesus. I wanna go through these. First of all, wonderful counselor. What does that mean? Well, I want you to put all your hope in Jesus, letter A, to guide you in perfect wisdom. I want you to put all your hope in Jesus to guide you in perfect wisdom. That's what he promises to be as the wonderful counselor. The word wonderful is the Hebrew word Pele. Whenever you hear the word Pele, this is what my professors always used to say, um, Pele. Who's Pele? Do you know anybody named Pele? You know, the soccer player named Pele. Guess what? He was a wonderful soccer player. Wonderful. Now you know the Hebrew word for wonderful, Pele. Uh, Wonderful. What does that mean? Well, in, in the Old Testament, it's actually used in multiple different ways, and one way that it's used is as a substitute for God's name himself. Okay. I don't know if you know this, but in Judges chapter thirteen, when Samson's parents are visited by the angel of the Lord and he speaks to them, Samson's dad Manoah asks a good question: "Hey, what's your name?" And the angel of the Lord said, "Why do you ask what my name is? Seeing that it is wonderful, Pele, don't ask my name." And then he he goes, Mom. and then right after that, Manoah's is like, "We saw God," and he tells his wife, "Are we going to die?" we might die. We just saw God himself. He called his name Wonderful. He got the picture. So even in Isaiah and specifically God using this title here, he's still like all of these titles are showing he's God, he's God, he's God. Pele, wonderful. Wonderful counselor. What about that though? The book of Isaiah talks about how God does not need a counselor. No one ever taught him wisdom. Isaiah 40, verse 14 says, uh, No one ever instructed the Lord. Who instructed the Lord? Who taught him the path of knowledge? Who taught God justice? Nobody did. Uh, He doesn't need a counselor, but he's our counselor. The New Testament says this about Jesus very important verse, John 1, 18. So, in that same section of John 1, at the very end of that, here's how John concludes it. He says, No one has ever seen God, not in his fullness the only God, who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. So one of the things that Jesus does for us, and here's how he's our wonderful counselor, he tells us what God is like in a way that no one else before him did. He shows us God's character in his life and his example in a way that nobody else did before. Because everyone else, whether it be a prophet, whether it be a priest, or a king, or anyone that came before, as righteous and godly as they were, they failed. And they faltered. And, they falter. and the, righteous, the righteous people of the Old Testament, we see their mistakes. But we don't see any mistakes in Jesus' life. We can look at him and say, I want to live like Christ. I want to live like Jesus did. Okay, well then follow his example. He's the wonderful counselor. More than that, he doesn't just set an example in his life or speak the truth to people. He also comes in to correct us when we're wrong. We see that played out in very graphic terms. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus talks to this church in Laodicea and near the end of that, after rebuking them and saying, guys, you, you, you don't understand, you're lukewarm, you're not hot and you're not cold, basically trying to tell some of these people, they're not even saved, a lot of them, it doesn't seem like, he says, look, just know this, uh, to those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Right? I don't think that's just true the Laodiceans, but you understand what that's saying, Jesus says to his people, those whom I love, I reprove. If there's a rebuke that's coming, it's because I care about you. You understand that um, God does not reprove and discipline non-Christians. He doesn't. Um, The Bible talks about how he gives them what they deserve. They're punished. That's different than discipline. Discipline and reproof is a measured thing that God gives out of love for people to try to keep them out of sin. Is there pain involved in both? Yes, but as a Christian, I want you to know, you'll never be punished by God. If you're saved, you'll never be punished by God. That's a crazy thought. You'll be disciplined by him. He oftentimes might bring pain into your life to correct things. He might bring pain in your life, not because you did anything sinful, just because he wants you to be more like him, but he doesn't punish in the sense of giving you what you deserve. Jesus is our wonderful counselor. Through his word, if you go to it day in and day out, do you know that you're going to be reproved and corrected? James 1 says we look at God's word and it's like a mirror. It shows us our faults. Right? And does it hurt sometimes to read God's word? Yeah, it does sometimes. Because we start to see that we're not as loving as we need to be. And we've got selfishness in our hearts. And maybe we're more proud than we see. And God's word shows us that. But it's because he loves us. He cares for us. He wants our good. The question for you, I guess, with the first subpoint is, is do you, as a person, do you, do you submit? Do you listen? Do you follow the counsel that Jesus gives? Or do you fight against it? Maybe are you unsubmissive? to what he wants for you. Do you say, I know that's God's rules, I know that's what Jesus wants, but I'd rather do something else. Second thing, he's called mighty God. The Hebrew word El Gabor. That's a term talking about how God's a mighty warrior. So uh, write this down for letter B. I want you to put all your hope in Jesus to have unlimited power over his enemies. I want you to trust Jesus to have unlimited power over his enemies. It's used of, God himself in Isaiah 10:21. It says, "A remnant, the remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God, El Gibor," talking about God himself. Deuteronomy 10:17 also uses this phrase to talk about the Lord. Again, just proving that Jesus is God, but listen to what this says. It says, "For the Lord your God is God of gods." This is Deuteronomy 10:17. And he's Lord of lords, the great, the mighty Gibor, and the awesome God. El is the word for God. Gibor is the word for hero or, or, or mighty one. He's the mighty God. Um, how does that apply to, in the New Testament? Well, I hope you understand in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is an odd passage, actually, if you think about it. Um, it's all about how Jesus is going to raise people from the dead one day. might have heard this passage that talking about our resurrection bodies. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 says, Then the end comes when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So when you hear El Gabor, when you hear mighty God, Jesus is the mighty God, what does that mean? Well, the ultimate thing that Jesus deals with is death. That's my problem, that's your problem. We're gonna die. We've had people who die. We have loved ones who die. That's our ultimate problem. Do you understand that Jesus comes in to save us from that? That's why he's our hero, That's why all the things in the Old Testament that lead up to that should make us rejoice and say, that is my hero. That's my God, Jesus the Lord. How did he do that? Well, he did that by dying in our place. He did that by rising again. That's why hopefully every funeral you go to, the pastor at some point is gonna quote what Jesus said that I am the resurrection and the life. And hopefully they're gonna talk about because Jesus rose from the dead, we have assurance that he will raise our mortal bodies as well. Question for us for the second one is, do we trust him enough to not fear death and to not fear hell and not to fear God's punishment? If you're a Christian, that's kind of what happened when you became a Christian, right? You trusted in him for the first time. But even if you are a Christian, do you trust God enough? Do you trust Jesus, this son, enough to walk through your life and not be terrified of death? to not be terrified of that. Because again, there are times where it gets scary for us and maybe a loved one dies or maybe we go through a health crisis that's super scary and we're like, whoa, freaked out of death. And we we should be rightly seeing death as big, but in Christ, we should say, I don't have to be afraid of it though. I don't have to live in, as Hebrews 2 says, lifelong fear and like a slavery that people have, a fear to death. We don't have to live that way jesus did what was necessary to give us life um, furthermore when he's called the everlasting father that's the third thing letter c um, i want you to trust jesus to be our eternal source of life to be our eternal source of life uh, reminds me of when you're camping or you're traveling and you've got um, a hydro flask or a yeti or a stanley cup if you're a white girl and uh you and the handle you know what i'm talking about you all you know, you know what i'm talking about yeah it's true uh, or if you're a really manly guy and you're so manly you can carry around a Stanley cup and no one questions your masculinity, right? Um, Whatever. Anyway, point is, you got your cup, right? And at some point, it runs out. You drink all of it. You use all your water. Uh, And if you're at a campsite or something and you don't have water there, you've got to go a long way to find water. And if you've ever been in a situation where you don't have enough water, you start to understand how dependent we are on, on the stuff, right? And if you were to go for a long time and not find any source of water, that'd be a problem. But let's say you find a source of water. Let's say you find a fountain or you find, you know, um, a a spigot or something. For us, we always think if you just keep that thing running, it's always going to replenish. It's always going to be full. But back in the old days, sometimes you would go to different fountains and bubbling brooks, and oftentimes because of the water level and because of the rain the year before or the snow on the high mountains, there wouldn't be enough water those fountains would run dry. The idea here of everlasting father, here's how I want you to picture it. Jesus, because he has existed forever in eternity past and will live forever in eternity future, that confirms that whatever promises he makes and whatever conquering over death that he promises, it will take place. He'll never be defeated. He's our eternal source of life. Jesus said in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, One of the reasons why people are hard to rely on is because people forget and people change their mind, right? Um, Jesus does not forget and Jesus does not change his mind. If he promises to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, he's gonna stand by that. He doesn't forget, he doesn't change his mind. Jesus promises to give us life. And he promises those of us who are in Christ that you're gonna get a brand new body that's gonna be righteous and pure and strong and that you're gonna live in a brand new world that's as real as this one. You could say it's even more real than this one. Well, then if he promised that, he's gonna see it through. If he promises judgment for those who are unrepentant, he's gonna promise that and he's gonna see it through. Jesus isn't someone that we can mess with or, or test. He's God himself. Question question for us here um, is, do you trust Jesus for eternal life? With all these you know, statements, I want you to ask yourself a question. The first question for letter A is, do you submit and listen to Jesus? Do you follow his counsel? Second question for letter B is, do you trust him enough to not be afraid of death? Third one is, do you trust in him for eternal life to begin with? Are you someone who's turned from your sin and said, Jesus, save me, forgive me, I trust you. The last one, Is one we could spend probably the most time on, but we're not gonna spend very much time on it because it's next time. It's the sermon for uh, two weeks from now. Uh, But this title, Prince of Peace, what does it mean? Well, I'd love for you to write it down this way, letter D. Um, I want you to put all your hope in Jesus to be or to to establish complete peace one day. I want you to trust and put your hope in Jesus to establish complete peace one day. For... Those of you in Christ, Romans 5.1 says that you are at perfect peace right now with God. Right now, your soul and God, perfect peace if you're in Christ. Um, that doesn't mean that everything in our world is at peace, but here's the thing. Some of us look at what the Old Testament says and think, oh man, well, God changed his mind or something happened and, you know, it's not really gonna be perfect peace. No, it is gonna be perfect peace. A- anything that brings you anxiety, or is a thorn in your side, so to speak? Do you understand that in God's new world, um, that problem will be solved? You might say, well, it's another Christian that's the thorn on my side. Well, guess what? Huh. You know, in this next life, in this new world, there's gonna be no conflict. There's gonna be no um, disunity. So the person that might cause problems for you is actually gonna be uh, helpful and beneficial in God's gift to you. You ever thought about that? that? Your body, if it's your body that's in pain, well, guess what? Your body is not gonna be in pain then. It's going to go away. Things that you don't like even about yourself. You understand that God is going to make you new and glorious. And it says in 1 Corinthians 5 that we're all going to be better looking. The word glorious means beautiful. So guess what? If you did not like how it turned out the first time, maybe you'll like it the second time. I don't know. Um, That goes for you guys as well. Um, I see see those mirror pictures at the gym. I see. um, Come on. (laughs) That got weird. I'm sorry. But it's true. God's going to remake our bodies and we're going to be glorious and strong and perfect. And you know why you can trust that? Because Jesus is exactly who he said he is. He promised, he fulfilled all the promises of the Old Testament. The question for us is are we depending on him to have peace right now with God and then peace eternally one day? Philippians 4 says that we can have the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding right now in our hearts, right? Our world, our situation is not always going to be peaceful. But Philippians Four, six says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. And people will say, you're crazy. I don't understand how you can be so at peace right now. as it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We need to keep turning to him and hoping in him. Uh, if we're unsatisfied with the peace that's going on, it reminds me of there was a time of 34 days um, at the end of the Civil War. And at the end of any war, there's usually a peace treaty that's signed, and then it takes a while for everyone to stop fighting. It usually doesn't happen the other way around. Sometimes the fighting stops, and then the peace treaty happens, but usually what happens is there's a peace that's signed, and then there's a time period after that where um, there's still fighting going on. That happened in the Civil War. It's kind of famous in the Civil War. In April 9th, 1865 is when the Civil War ended. You might remember... General E. Lee and uh, Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia. They got together and they said, all right, we're going to stop fighting. We're going to be killing each other. And they went home, right? And it was very famous because instead of um, with all these punishments that usually take place in war, they said, you're our brothers. You're going to be back in our country. We want you back. Instead of saying, we're never going to bring the Confederacy back, the Union was like, we're going to be together, right? So it was a relatively peaceful thing. But the problem was for years and not years and years, sorry, days and days, uh there was still fighting. The last battle in the Civil War did not take place in Virginia. It took place in the little city of Brownsville, Texas. Uh, Brownsville, Texas is 1,600 miles away. This battle took place on May 12th and May 13th, so this is 34 days after the peace was signed, but the Union side and the Confederate side continued to fight for 34 days. Brownsville, Texas, if you were to look at a map, right, let's just pretend like this is a, a map of Texas. You know, Texas has got the little bottom corner there in the Gulf of Mexico. Brownsville, Texas is the border town at the very, very bottom. It's like Mexico, basically. Um, I've never been to Brownsville, Texas. I've always kind of wondered, like, what's down there? Well, Brownsville, Texas is down there. And there was one battle that took place. And I just want you to imagine, in between that time, if you knew the peace had been signed, but there was a battle still going on, how would you feel? Well, I hope you'd be putting all your hope in, hey, there's a peace treaty that's been signed. The battle's gonna be over. It's gonna be over soon. There might still be some fighting going on, but look. It's going to be over, and Jesus is going to establish that perfect peace. That's how we need to think. When there's battles and there's um, things that we have to fight in our world today, um, it's all just a preamble for peace because peace is coming. We're going to talk about that next time. Now, we mentioned that we are not going to have True North next week, uh, December 10th and 11th, and you can all say, aww, but, uh, yeah, right, right, right. Uh, But the reason is we've got the kids' Christmas musical next week, which is going to be super fun, um, but Yes, that's right. Thanks, (laughs) Tomas. He's like, I want the slow cop. I want the kids to get the recognition. Um, I will say this. Two weeks from now, this is why I'm explaining so much. You're like, I thought you usually prayed at the end of your sermons. I will later. But we're not meeting again for True North for a Sunday sermon until December 18th, which is the day after Christmas at the Disney, okay? So we'll have... Two more small groups, two Wednesday nights. But I want you to know we're going to kind of unpack more of this idea of Jesus being Prince of Peace and his government in Isaiah 9-7 next time. okay? But that's going to be December 18th, so that's a long time from now. But let me pray, and then we will uh, we'll head out. God, we're thankful that you make such specific promises and you keep them. Thank you that you're reliable, that you never change your mind, you never cast off your people or your promises. I'm thankful that you've made specific promises to us that we can rely on. Promises like that you'll forgive us, promises like in James 1 that you'll give us wisdom if we ask, promises like you'll give us the spirit if we call on you. We're thankful that many people in this room have been indwelt by your spirit simply because they asked and they trusted in you at the point of their salvation. We're thankful that you've answered our prayers in the past and we we pray that we would continue to rely on you in the future. Please help us Please guide us, and I just ask that we would put all of our hope in you and that you would um, guide us in your peace this Christmas time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you are dismissed. See you Wednesday night.